Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFist podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 230, and today's guest is Ankith Harathi, co-founder and CEO of Macro. It's a Zoom world that we're all living in these days as it relates to meetings. Yes, Zoom became a verb, and the company experienced insane levels of growth during the pandemic. But let's face it, the future of work has also changed with most companies embracing remote work, and the world of online meetings are here to stay. So if this is the way of the world, shouldn't your online meeting experience and profile look a lot more personalized and meaningful? Well, Ankit thinks so, and the company just launched their new Zoom client for creatives, where you can remove the barriers to true self-expression and bring the full you. Macro raised over $4 million last year with Tier A investors. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like tips for running a successful and inclusive online meeting, Ankit's background, and his experience with a startup before going back to school to pursue a MBA MS joint degree at Harvard, which is where he also met his co-founder, John, a deep dive into the creation of Macro and the iterations the product went through to where it is today, a product demo of Macro where he shares lots of the core features and you can also check out the visual on YouTube, why a company should have three different versions of their pitch deck when raising funding, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, the VentureFish job board has over 8,000 positions listed and we have some exciting news to share. We recently updated the design of our job board, which has improved search capabilities and advanced filters to make your job search a snap. Go to VentureFizz.com backslash jobs to get started. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Ankit. Ankit, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me, Keith. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you because we have a lot to talk about. You're building a company that is in the sweet spot of where a lot of people spend their time these days, and that's in front of Zoom conducting meetings. And even though they're, um, you know, the world is changing, <laughs> sometimes we're like, oh, we're coming out of the pandemic, but then sometimes we're starting to fade back in. But I don't think the world is going to change in terms of uh, the need for great online meetings. I think a lot of people are going to continue to work remotely. So I think this is a necessity. Uh, so what I thought we'd start talking about is, uh, you know, what tips do you have? Because you're kind of always thinking about this, like what tips do you have for running a successful and inclusive online meeting? Yeah. So there's a lot out there. I think that even before the pandemic, like tips to lead better meetings or how to have uh, more productive meetings have always been a topic since the dawn of meetings. And there's no like right or wrong reason or cut and dry, like checklist that you can go to. I think the number one thing that we found out in our last two and a half years of building and learning and trying to figure out the space is at the end of the day, it comes down to the people. It's not necessarily the raw productivity of taking notes. And that's kind of like table stakes there, but really it comes down to people and how you can make them feel comfortable in the meeting especially in virtual meetings, I think that what is really tough is that there's no before the meeting or after the meeting as you're entering or leaving the conference room, you miss those moments uh, in person when you're in a virtual meeting because you're either, it's, it's, it's a very binary thing. You're either in or you're out. You're not, there's no kind of transition in and there's no transition out. And so a couple of things like, I mean, our whole goal as a product and a company is to focus on the people and the humans and the softer side of meetings, making them inclusive and expressive. And a couple of things that we found is having just dedicated time at the beginning of the meeting as people shuffle in to talk about non-work things. Like don't have an agenda for this portion. Have an agenda specifically to say, we're not going to have an agenda for the first five or 10 minutes of the meeting if it's a longer meeting. Um, if it's more of a shorter tactical meeting, you can kind of jump in and out. But especially at the beginning of the week, uh, asking and just having chat about people's lives, how they're doing, what they were up to this weekend. Um, we find that through our surveying and, and talking to users, the deepest connections between people form when they're not talking about something that was planned, rather an unplanned or coincidental um, conversation that they realized they had something in common or they did the same thing this weekend or they're watching the same show on Netflix. That's where you really bond and you learn about who the other person is or other people that you're meeting with and you deepen the relationships. And I think that's what matters most. And that's kind of the best outcome you can ask for in a meeting. Yeah, no, I agree. It's uh, pretty much what I try to do, uh, you know, because I'm not running a lot of internal meetings per se, but the uh, anytime I connect, you know, because all the meetings with potential customers or current customers for VentureFizz are all online. So mm -hmm. I always do try to connect the dots initially as far as, you know, 
how's your summer? Just having some small talk instead of just diving right in because it definitely need that personal connection, which is uh, tougher to establish. Yeah, and forced icebreakers are sometimes great, but they're also very kind of cringy a lot of the time. And <laughs> it, it's nice to be able to find unforced, really natural conversation starters. And that's another thing we're trying to do as our products add these natural context points where you're not going out of your way. You're not forcing something that feels um, unnatural into the audience, into the, into the people you're meeting with, but making people just feel really at ease and comfortable and in front of a camera, that is also a really big challenge too. So we do, I'm sure we'll dive into a lot of how we do that or our approach to the space um, later on. Yeah. And I mean, case in point, the you know question I'm going to ask you next is, where did you grow up? And, you know, based on my podcast studio, I have a Florida Gators helmet in the background. Yeah. And you're like, did you go to Florida? Are you a Gators fan? And right away, the ice was broken as far as the back exactly. and forth conversation between us and why I have that there. So anyways, let's dive into that. So where did you grow up? Yeah. So uh, like we were talking about, I think maybe a few minutes before you hit record, was born in Gainesville, Florida, actually, because my parents went to UF. But I have very little memory of Gainesville because I moved out of Gainesville to Portland, Oregon when I was just, I think, two or three years old. And the majority of my formative life um, before college, all in Portland, Oregon. So grew up there. I associate Portland with like my hometown. Um, and it was a very fun experience growing up in Portland. It's Definitely a beautiful community. If you haven't been to the Pacific Northwest, I think it's one of the, if you love nature, you have to go. Um, grew up there. My family is still there. And yeah, I still call Portland home. Yeah. And it's obviously a, a great place where it inspires a lot of running. That's where Nike is. Yes, obviously yeah. And that's, you ran cross country, right? Like you were very busy yeah. in high school from the research I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, well, honestly, the running came about because I had played soccer um, from elementary school before that kick and chase as it was called and then through middle school and then in high school when I got there I went to a very competitive athletic high school I was not good enough to make JV my freshman year and so didn't get make the team and so I was like okay well you can't get cut from cross country so decided to go around cross country was really not great at it but I, I think being in Portland with the Nike culture just like infused in you and like with Oregon I mean it's just all about running track and field town and, and state and so put a lot of effort into that and then running became my thing and I still that's like kind of my go-to um exercise or uh today so but I also picked up that you like to build and restore things I mean you were part of the first robotics competition you were restoring motorcycles during high school like like really cool stuff which all makes sense as to why you went on to study mechanical and aerospace engineering, as well as an applied economics and management minor at Cordell, <laughs> which all then I'm like, oh, he was valedictorian of his high school. Got it. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot, a lot going on when you're in high school. And it's also just like the, the pressure of like needing to do a lot of things to go to college. But I think what my parents recognized was I love to just take apart things, whether it was stuff that was meant to be taken apart or not. And my dad had grown up as many people in India would know, like riding motorcycles, fixing scooters, that's kind of the main method of transportation there. And here in America, you have obviously cars far more um, prevalent, but the downside of cars is you can't really just easily tinker with them. They're really hard to teach, they're very complex, but an old motorcycle is extremely um, simple in comparison. And so we just started as an effort, I think on his part to control my somewhat destructive nature of like trying to take everything apart and figure out how it works. And then sometimes you're just, most of the time you're unable to put it back together. We would go and we started buying, we spent a hundred bucks and bought a motorcycle off a barn in Craigslist. And we spent, I think the first one took almost a year to like take it apart, restore it, like learned all the, like the tips and tricks, read forums, and then just got me into that. And I think started that my sophomore year of high school, uh, eventually turned into a little business. And that's what made me decide to make major in mechanical engineering and unfortunately, I didn't really do any of my uh, career, my professional career in mechanical engineering because I found like I didn't love it as a professional career. But I think the background and um, still using it as a hobby to spend time on the sides are, is what I really like to do. Oh, at Cornell, you were part of the Formula Racing Project team as well. So you were yeah, you know, getting exposed to that, which maybe allowed you to think maybe that's not what I want to do with my career, but uh, still a fun thing to do. Yeah, I mean, I think if anyone hasn't seen Drive to Survive on Netflix, like I think I've recommended that show to more people uh, than I can even count. But 
now I, more and more people are into F1. I understand what it means. And it's nice to, nice to have like some people more understanding of what formula racing was in college. And by no means was it ever anything like the show that F1 is able to put on, but there's a little bit of that DNA in there where you're building a car, you're trying to build something together as a team that is competing on the edge of mechanical engineering, physics thresholds. And, um, it's exciting to just compete to build something together as students and you actually do get to like we compete with teams internationally at michigan international speedway so uh, really fun experience but also helped me realize it wasn't a professional career for me it was something that i would always do on the side got it now you did have a couple of internships uh, through cornell like what, what did you do during that time yeah so i actually spent most of my internships working at boeing in seattle um testing out again, the ability of to work as a mechanical engineer professional. And Boeing was a really great company to work for, tons of exposure, works on a lot of different projects, but it also helped me realize that as a mechanical engineer, especially like these medium to very large companies, you're very siloed in the work that you do because one small part, one small assembly can dominate most of your work life for anywhere from like a few months to years of just perfecting a small part, especially with the like life cycle of airplane manufacturing, right? It's like those things go under massive testing, government regulations, and the life cycle to put out a new airplane is on the order of years to decades. And so that also coupled with, I'm a very impatient person. Many people will tell you that. Um, I want to see what I'm working on, like out there in the wild and having people using it like as soon as possible, like as soon as it's ready or as it's done. Um, and so the, the, desire to actually have more influence in the breadth of the spectrum of across things of building and also the impatience of getting it out there as fast as possible and reducing that iteration cycle time, I think led me away from mechanical to software engineering and, and product and startups. It's such a great foundation to have though. Like anytime I'm like, I'm always fascinated. So like, let's say I'm boarding a plane and I even like the door, the entryway, when I just look at all the components that make just that part of the plane, like someone had to design that, someone had to manufacture that, someone had to put it all together. And it's just like, this is insane as far as the complexity of what goes into building one of these. And this is just the door. <laughs> so yeah, it's just crazy. I think everything, like it, it applies from hardware to software to everything in between, like everything is infinitely compl more complex than you can imagine just looking at it on the surface. And I still drive over bridges and I'm like, I have no idea how how people even built bridges now. And I don't know how they did it hundreds of years ago. Like that still boggles my mind. The, the bridge thing blows my mind because it's just so complex to build it. And actually the process of building it. Now the, the design, you have to be so perfect because if you're, <laughs> if you're off, that's going to screw up the whole bridge. So it's it just, it's pretty mind blowing as far as people that can do that. So kudos to them. I'm very grateful for all the hard work they do now. So what did you do after college? So after graduating, I actually had a small stint in engineering consulting, um, which was kind of my segue of going from engineering more into the business side of things, testing it out. I didn't really like consulting, but very quickly through random family, friend connections, I met two people who are pretty very influential in my life, Rohan Gopaldas and William Caldas. And they were starting a company in the video gaming industry. They happened to be in Boston. I knew Rohan through a family connection um, and met him and as I knew very few people in Boston. As soon as they raised their initial funding, started to get things off the ground, I quit my consulting job, joined them full-time. Uh, I'd always been a gamer growing up too. It was kind of part of my nature of like playing video games, whether that was console or PC. And they were building an esports coaching platform. And this is this was in 2016. So yeah, five years ago when gaming was still very, very large, but not even near what the massive kind of more popular presence it has today. And I, I honestly was just like, I think that these people are great. I love the gaming industry. I want to join them. And like, let's see if we can build something really interesting. And that was my first exposure to startups. I, I like reflecting back on it now, undergrad and, and even part of internships and my initial like professional career before joining a startup, there's almost, I had no idea what startups were, didn't really even realize that industry existed, how to break into it until I was kind of just given this opportunity and I wasn't even considering other opportunities. It was just kind of coincidental serendipitous. And that was my gateway drug to startups as an industry. And I've never left and I don't think I ever will leave. <laughs> yeah, look, cause the idea was like, if you're an athlete, you want one-on-one -on -one coaching to help you get better at playing soccer or, or basketball. So the idea was the same here. If you're going to be 
uh, a gamer. This is going to coach you up and hopefully increase your skills. And maybe someday you could become a professional gamer. Yeah, there was definitely multiple different emotional appeals that we tried to, to convince or for our users of. So the first is exactly like you said, like you are a gamer, you're playing these games anyways. Hey, maybe you could actually be pro or amateur level. Like let's help you get a coach because this is what people who are trying to get better actually genuinely do. The other angles to this were like, let's say you're an adult, you already have a working career, but you've been a gamer and you're now your time to play games is limited. Uh, after work, after taking care of any household chores, family, et cetera, your time to enjoy and play video games by yourself or with friends is much smaller. So let's help you make the most out of that time by giving you a coach so that you're performing at your best during that time or impressing your friends. A lot of that is not just playing better at the chance of going pro, but you want to impress your friends. You want people to be like, holy shit, like, how did you do that? Like, uh, you're ranking up, that sort of stuff. And then the last is actually, which was surprisingly a large market for us is having parents get coaching so that they can play it with their kids because when kids would play video games it was such a foreign concept to parents of like how do I play this game and even if they had the best intentions the kids were like mom and dad you're not great at these games like I don't want to play with you or you don't get it or you don't understand how this works and so we actually had a good amount of parents reaching out to us saying like hey, my kid is playing Fortnite my kid is playing Roblox Minecraft like let me like let me just get a few lessons to like learn the basics of these games like so i can engage with my kid on these topics um and play with them and so that was also like a very interesting uh angle to take in the market too i would imagine since this was a startup you wore lots of different hats uh so what do you think you learned over that stretch of time like different roles and responsibilities that you held the biggest thing i learned was really on the sales side so eventually my title and we went through like fluctuations as I, like you said, wore different hats was like on and in growth. And what that actually ended up being was we had a discord server and a Skype channel with thousands of our customers on it after like for customer support. And I led a customer support team there where they would deal with issues on the product, like payments, refunds, scheduling, et cetera. But we ended up using those channels to actually upsell and created our subscription offering. So I would literally spend most of my day every single day, calling people on Skype and on Discord and saying, hey, how are your lessons going with these coaches? Like if, if they were to offer a weekly or bi-weekly or any sort of subscription pack, what would you sign up for? What discounts could we give you? And when we, people started signing up, we would enter them manually. We'd create a SQL script and uh, run that against our database to like manually schedule these lessons in the future and charge their credit card automatically at the point of those lessons before we even had a subscription product. And it was really just like selling all those thousands and became hundreds of thousands of hours of coaching that helped us develop our subscription product, lead, uh, sorry, raise our series A. And then shortly after, when I decided I kind of wanted to do my own thing, decided to exit the business and figure out kind of what were my next steps to start something from the ground up this time. Well, and then, so then you went and uh, pursued a, your MBA at HBS, which was a combo program, right? It was an MS MBA mm -hmm. program that was just start it right this you were like one of the first students to go through that right yeah so rohan and william again the two co-founders of that gaming company were both hbs alum and i still to this day maintain very close relationships with them more of friends rather than like and friends and mentors instead of just bosses and they when i talk to them about hey i really love what i'm what we are doing here but i also have this like desire to do something of my own. I'm seeing how you guys are doing it. And I want to be you guys one day. And they recommended like saying, Hey, if you don't have an idea already that you don't like want to go off and build, which if you do, then go and do it. If you don't go to business school, it's a great opportunity to network, to learn, to meet people. And so that's exactly what I did. And uh, I think purely because of their recommendation, I was able to uh, get into HBS and have that fortune. And at the same time, they connected me with the professor, Tom Eisenman, who was starting the MSMBA. So it was a joint degree, master's of science in any discipline you chose. I chose computer science and the MBA. Um, and it was purely constructed, as it was explained to me, for people who wanted to do found a company. It was That was the main goal. A lot of the specific joint degree curriculum was tailored towards entrepreneurship. And I was like, great, this is what I want to do. Uh, let's do it. And I was not really afraid of trying something new, one, because it's at Harvard and like what the downside is like it's at Harvard and even at the program and I also just believed in it and um, so I think that was very lucky uh, timing wise and it was awesome it was a group of I think 28 of us as the first cohort to go through that program and uh, they're some of the most awesome smart kind 
and um, my bet would be successful people that I'll ever meet. Well, one of which was your co-founder, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I met John, John Keck, who is Macro's co-founder and CTO the very first week of that program. And we very and we pretty much instantly just paired up and said, we're going to find something together because I think we hit it off. Again, he's a mechanical engineer, went through the same experience. Instead of that Boeing, it was like Eli Lilly, didn't like the mechanical engineering corporate world and went to DoorDash very early, like I think right before or around their series A. And oh, wow. they obviously had, early. They had a very, yeah, very big success story where he rode that um, rocket ship and helped them scale initially in like launching cities and um, in operations to building their internal tools team. And his experience was incredible. Uh, we kind of hit it off both on a personal level and also on an interest level of what we wanted to do and found a company. And we just decided like, we locked arms and we're like, okay, cool, we're gonna find something that like really excites both of us and dig deep there. And we formed the company. And after three kind of pivots and iterations, we're, we're here at, with Mac, what Macro is today. Very cool. Well, let's talk about that journey. So kind of like you set off, you meet John, you're like, okay, we're going to find something. So uh, if you have any fun stories of things you thought about that and didn't end up making any progress and you can look back and kind of chuckle, uh, but then kind of like what led you to discover this idea and kind of those first iterations? Yeah, I mean, tons of tons of ideas that we did basically nothing with. Well, actually, the reason that John and I got together, there was a, a third student in the program, Stan Chang, who had this idea for a company. And he, he pulled literally Don, John and I in together and said, before John and I had really ever met and said, I'd like to like talk with you three about like us three. We should get together and talk about this idea. And I'm like, yeah, why not? And his idea was what we, we called it addressably, which was an address changing service. And it was very much like a problem we were all experiencing immediately then as we just moved to campus is for people who are young in their careers, um, renting, you change addresses quite frequently, but it is a pain to update your address, not only for mailing, but across all the social, like the services you use, uh, every credit card, every bank, every uh, application that needs your home address, right? And so it's a pain. So let's change addresses. That idea lasted all about a week uh, for us to just like research it. We made some teaser video, uh, set up like a very rough website and decided, hey, there was nobody that was like super passionate about pursuing this idea after we like learned a little bit, a bit about it more. And Stan kind of went off on his own. He's actually a co-founder of a, a security company now that went through YC recently. But John and I kind of stayed together and said, okay, I mean, yeah, address changing doesn't really get us going, but what does? And we also, at the same time, were experiencing this problem of like, we didn't know where to spend our time. Business school is kind of this interesting environment where for the first time, in my life, I experienced it where there's, you have so many choices of what to do. You could go to these events, you could go to networking events, social events, professional events, club events, like school events. And I had no idea like what I should be doing with my time. And we decided like, how could we learn how to spend our time better? And, and on a personal level as humans, like when should we be, how, how much every week should we be socializing or every day? And then personal time and spending time with family and significant others. And like there's no kind of playbook or guidance to this that we could find. And so could we build that very consumer oriented. That idea lasted maybe a few months before we said, okay, there's not a lot of data around how people personally spend their time. So we eventually said, well, time is still important. We really care about time. Let's go to, on the business side, calendars, meetings. There's a ton of time there. And that was the very beginning of us starting to pull out a thread that we continued to keep unraveling. Because yeah, the from what I saw in the early either interviews that you did or announcements, there was a um, like a, a plugin basically that was with Slack and and you know Google Calendar that would survey, hey, how did the meeting go? And it would create this like net meeting score, like a net promoter score type of thing. Right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that was like a pure data play. Like, can we get people to rate their meetings? Because people complain about their meetings. That was one thing we picked up. Like everyone we talked to was like, oh, meetings are the worst. Like, how do I spend less time in meetings? And we were like, okay, why? Like, you clearly have such strong emotional reactions to meetings. Let's try to capture that through a little bit of the data. And so that was Marlo, the Slack plugin that did that. Once we got enough data, that grew really, really quickly across Slack communities and companies we made the decision of we didn't want to be an analytics big brother HR type company that are reporting on you and your direct reports to your managers of like how you're right. going. Like we don't want to be that company, but we did. Uh, find we need to talk to you because your meetings are getting really poorly <laughs> rated. Like <laughs> that would be mortifying. And, and it's also breaks down like, why would an employee or why would I as a team member use that tool rating my meetings only for the data that only somehow be used against me in the future? Exactly. It doesn't make any sense. True. So, yeah. 
But one of the things we found, which I think was super fascinating, which has led us to where we are today, which is the sole reason why we started to build Macro was we found in virtual meetings, 40% of the time they were rated lower than an acceptable score because somebody was dominating the conversation. And so we were like, that's, we got to make people shut up. Like we got to make people stop dominating conversations. How do we make that happen? And it's not good enough after the meeting to say, Hey, you should have talked less this meeting. Like, great, cool. I'll try to remember that the next time I'm in this meeting next week or whatever. So we wanted to do it live. And the very first idea we had was what if we put like Pokemon style health bars under every single person in the meeting uh, that you could see while you're in the meeting, if it was a virtual meeting. And this was again, pre pre COVID, this was October, November of 2019, or yeah, exactly. Um, I'm I, honestly with COVID, I forget the years and it's a and time warp. Happened. Total time but, warp. <laughs> yeah, we were like, how funny would it be to see like somebody's literally dying on screen, their health bar is going so low because you haven't included them in the conversation, or someone's about to burst because they've been talking too much. Like it was very cheeky, but that led us to something which was going into the meeting interface and trying to customize the meeting interface based off of inputs and data to help have the meeting be more inclusive and just more healthy, um, more engaging. And that led to a whole number of talking about how things that seem simple on the surface end up becoming very complex. We made so many decisions there to build on top of Zoom, to build our own client, to not just do airtime, which is what we call that now, but pivot down towards expression features and, and other um, aspects of the meeting. Got it. And then like, how did you kind of get going with some of this? Like, you know, um, you did raise an initial investment, like you raised more capital, but there was an initial investment from, I believe, Underscore and NextView. Yes, two, two great uh, bosses. Yeah, so you got two great firms investing kind of early on where you're still trying to figure it out with John. Like, how did you convince, you know, the early stage investors that you guys were onto something? So the very first thing we did going back to Marlowe with the Slack bot was we... And I would say mostly John, because he is much more, and obviously as he leads the, the technical team at Macro, uh, more technical. So we built the early prototype of Marlowe before, basically a few months after starting business school. And business school classes are actually kind of similar to a meeting in that they're not lecture driven, but they're rather more discussion debate oriented. So they have that dynamic of not one person talking that whole time. And so there's discussion happening. And before launching the companies, we actually just launched it to our sections at HBS. And after every class, people would rate the class and they would say, and these are obviously different answers pre-bucketed than we would surface to company users, but they would rate what they thought of the class, all anonymous, like on a, on a scale, we would score the class and also what they thought could have been better about the class. And then we'd send the report at the end of the day of like, hey, here's what everyone rated like the, the final score, you can see all the anonymous results for every one of your classes. And then what we did what was super interesting is we started comparing classes across sections. So like your entrepreneurship class in section A versus section B's entrepreneurship class, here how they're trending. And people got really fascinated by that. And it grew from basically our two sections of like roughly 180 people to four or five sections in just a few months of people at uh, business school using it. We went to underscore. I think underscore actually was the first people to reach out because Lily at underscore, who's our partner, she was very closely involved with the MSMBA program and hosted, I think, a brunch for us uh, just to get to know us. And that was how we built a relationship. And we honestly thought we were too early to raise VC. Like we had won a small check at like dorm room funds competition and other kind of student run orgs, but we, f we figured no VC would fund us if we weren't full time, uh, so like student, like dropouts or, you know, not in school. And surprisingly after we built the prototype showed her our traction and said hey this is what we want to do lily's like hey yeah, like if you want to raise a pre-seed round like we'll fund you and you can really prove this out in a larger way she roped in uh david at nexu who's also been an incredible partner and that was our first funding round kind of pulled together without even us realizing that we'd be able to do it that is so so cool and it's you know it is smart from uh underscore nexu to uh, you know, you, you want to get involved with great founders and if they're great founders, they'll figure it out. They'll, they'll figure it out eventually. So, uh, okay. So now I guess kind of through the iterations, you did end up closing a larger round of over $4 million. So at that point you must've had some, um, you know, early adopter customers, some, you know, great traction that said, Hey, you know, there's, there's a lot to, there's an, a legit business here versus, a couple students with an idea? Yes and no. Actually, maybe for the most part, no. So what we ended up doing, so that first pre-seed round of 500K was probably in 
I want to say like January of 2018 or something like that, like basically halfway through our first year. And the second round was in March of 2020, actually right before COVID, um, a little over halfway through our second year. What happened since then was we had done Marlowe. Marlowe grew to 30,000 people like companies, uh, users at companies using it, tons of data happening, uh, coming through, but we weren't, weren't monetized with we zero revenue. And actually what we pitched was we weren't going to do Marlowe anymore. We literally pitched, we we've done this thing for a while. We proved we can build something and execute and get it to some scale. We've gotten a lot of insight into it. Now fund us to go build macro, which at the time we called it super chat, which it looks completely different. Lots has changed since then, but it was, the story was we've built this thing. We've learned a lot. And now we need more funding to go and build this actual meeting interface layer. Um, and that's what we started pitching to. We did a, we did a SF roadshow uh, in February of 2019, came back from that and then closed around about a month later. Okay. So yeah, like, so I guess the way you look at it is the entrepreneurs that I've been, that I've spoken to for this podcast, you know, the more successful ones spent a lot of time doing customer discovery before actually going to build the product. And it sounds like you guys kind of did something similar where you had a product that was collecting a ton of data that ultimately led you to the aha moment of this is what the world needs, not what we're currently doing. So, yeah, I think there's a really great article by David Sachs. I think it's called like crossing the penny gap or something like that. Like it's, it's along those lines. It's crossing something and it's not, it's not, um, it's not crossing the chasm though, but it's all about how, like, you know, I think a very successful way of entrepreneurship is like you said, tons of customer discovery, tons of customer research, you build a personas and then you build a product to solve the, the problems of those personas that you've identified. What we did. And I think what is kind of a new wave, which is different. And I don't think one is more successful than the other is, you get together and you just build something because you think this is going to be cool. And I just personally think this is awesome. You build it, you release it, and then you see, okay, are people using it or not? If not, great. You go back to the drawing board, you iterate. If people use it, then you're like, okay, cool. Now why? Like, why are they using it? Why do they actually think that I, what I thought was cool, they also find cool, right? And so you actually are now reverse engineering. You already get to some sort of user threshold. And then you say, I have no idea what, who my users are and why they're using it. So let me go figure that out. And you reverse engineer, okay, here are my users. Here's what they have in common. Then you develop the personas and then you kind of use that to inform your product roadmap going forward. So it's a little bit backwards. And I think that is one thing that John and I do well, but it's also, I think, part of our biggest downfalls. We are engineers, we are builders, and we definitely jump to building before talking to people and learning. Um, and it's gotten us to this point so far, uh, but I think that I definitely think customer discovery and learning is equally, if not more important and critical at some point of the product development pipeline. All right, well, let's bring our audience up to speed on where Macro is today, um, because by the time this airs, you will just have launched yeah. the product into the market. So talk about what you guys do, the problem you're solving, core features, whatever you can share. Yeah, so the simplest way to put it is Macro helps you bring your full self into every Zoom meeting. What that means to us is how do you make meetings feel like we talked about in the very beginning of this conversation, comfortable, inclusive, and help you be expressive and authentic and natural in meetings. With Zoom and the prevalence of video conferencing, when you jump into a call with people, even if they're people you know really, really well, your closest colleague, even your family, there's a little bit of awkwardness and maybe a lot of awkwardness still in the conversation. One, because the interface is not natural to how conversations happen in real life. And also there's no culture into the interface. It doesn't take your relationship and reflect it into the canvas. It is very much you're in grids, essentially like almost like a jail cell, like it's very rigid. And it also is generic, like regardless of who you are or who anybody else is, like they, you both are using the same interface. And also depending on who you're talking to, it's the same interface, whether it's family, friends, work, like you're talking through people and it's kind of the same interface no matter what. And one thing we strongly believe now is that software should become personalized to you, who you are in that conversation, who you are as an individual, and it should adapt to who you are rather than force you to operate in a way that's unnatural to you based off how the software dictates. So what Macro is, is a fully customizable Zoom interface where you can join any Zoom meeting with your own client, even if everyone else is on the call is on Zoom and you get to customize your interface and I can show you a little video of what that looks like now, so this is macro. So uh, Keith, you probably joined this call via Zoom, but you can see Zoom is actually not even running on my computer. Um, hmm. What macro is, is a full third-party client that lets you 
puts you in control, puts you in the driver's seat of the interface. And so there's a lot of th different things that you can do here. But the first is it's really customizable. So it's you and I in this call. Um, I can pan us around. I can pinch us, pinch the zoom. I can really zoom in on you and put you in the kind of the focus in the in the hot seat, so to speak. Or if I don't really care about seeing myself, I can um, hide myself video. I can move myself anywhere off the screen, I can put you front and center. And it also lets you arrange meetings. So imagine if you know we're in a larger meeting where there's groups of stakeholders you really care about, there's people who are kind of more passive listeners, you can arrange the meeting to the dynamic that you probably have seen in the conference room, as opposed to this like gallery view that's like very tiled and uh, linear hierarchy. Um, so that's kind of just one facet of actor. As you can see here, I'm in this like star pattern. So one of the things we wanted to do is help people be really expressive, but in a way that shows to Zoom users too. And so we have this really interesting camera technology that lets you toggle through camera shapes. And a lot of people would actually just use it to like react as like you're reacting to something, you can just like change your shape a ton. And then also with filters and you can actually use them in tandem to do a lot of fun uh, effects just to, that are really simple, that are very easy to trans like transfer a visually to the Zoom interface. Um, but yeah, like to get the point across, like break up the monotony of boxes and grids in right. with shapes and colors. Um, let's see, we have airtime here. So I've been dominating this conversation at 71%. And you can see my 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 like shape is slightly bigger than yours uh, as passive indications of like, hey, I'm dominating this conversation. And I guess for a podcast, that might be acceptable. But in a normal conversation, I would try it, especially in one-on-one, -on -one, try to get that way closer to 50-50. Um, I can, I, I guess, and we have like custom reactions here that you actually can take over your full virtual background with um, that are overlaid on top of our own video feed. And what we actually do is, I'm sure you've seen this NFT movement, the rise of how artists are celebrated and elevated and able to monetize their own works. What we do is we actually collaborate with very famous artists to create these reaction packs and we drop them as experimental and uh, exclusive drops into our app, which you can sign up and get. And you can then use different artists' work as a way to react in your meetings, which I think is really fun and a way to involve the community and elevate the artists. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a whole lot of other features here. Like we want to just, we created what we call uh, social profile. So uh, earlier, actually this week on Twitter, we had this reserved username flow where people could just, without even knowing what macro is, just sign up and reserve their username. And that went pretty viral, which is awesome to see. And our whole plans for that is like who you are is, is just intrinsic to you. And you should bring that with you to meetings because you want people to know when they meet with you, how they should address you, what pronouns to use. And maybe you can start filling in there a little bit of details and context for yourself. So you can say, I'm watching this show on Netflix. Oh, you're watching that show on Netflix. So I think bringing a more of who you are into your meetings without extra work is really important to us. Uh, and the last thing I'll kind of show off is a new way to kind of collaborate. So this is what we call our kind of our floating mode uh, where it's a way to get work done on your computer and be present with others while still being on the call. and either collaborating on something or multitasking, uh, but it, it's a very flexible way to just be in your meeting, but still be present with other people. And screen real estate is so expensive these days. And currently like with Zoom or with other calls, like you're either in the call or you're not paying attention to it at all and you can't see it. And we wanna help you be present um, no matter what you're doing on your computer and, uh, with, and who you're with. Very, very cool. And so I did, go through the sign up because I saw other people doing it. So I did uh, reserve my username. So I was able to get at Keith, my first name. Yeah. So I'm like, bonus. So so um, I thought that was interesting how you were doing that. So the question I have is, to, so I need to have macro on my computer to do all the cool things that you just showed me and the other person does too? No, so like you're on Zoom right now and you can still see all the stuff that I'm doing with my shape and camera filter. So that's the beauty of what we call this interoperable world and why we think software is personalized as opposed to just generic. So if we were to say build a competitor to Zoom, which is you've seen so many of those come out, um, especially during COVID, that requires every single person on that team or whoever you're meeting with to also download and be using the same software as you. We are right. trying to break that constraint by saying, no, actually meetings, which is a very intimate form of communication and self-expression, it's a personal choice. So you can join with Zoom, you can join with Macro or any other Zoom client. There aren't really any others right now, but we're hoping to change that and help other people build their own Zoom clients in the future. But we wanna make it all about you and let you choose the way you communicate and how you are coming off and being perceived by others. And so you're joining this call via Zoom, I'm joining this call via Macro. There's a couple of features that are personal to me, like being able to control the canvas and control my UI, but the way I express myself um, visually with colors, shapes, filters, reactions, that also comes to people 
but you'll still all, you'll still be able to see all of that even if you're on Zoom. Got it. Okay. Now, one of the key decisions I'm assuming you had to make was building a product on top of Zoom. Um, what went into that? And like, I, what, what type of feedback did you get from other people? Because I would imagine those, you know, you'd probably get both sides of the equation, like, wow, that's so smart to, ooh, you know, I don't know if that's a good idea. Like, so, so talk about that thought process. <laughs> definitely, definitely both sides of the equation there. So um, our investors who invested in that $4.3 million seed round all really believed in our vision of we basically solely built on existing platforms since our founding almost two and a half years ago, right? It was for Slack and now it's Zoom. The reason primarily is because of minimizing user behavior change and maximizing distribution. So what I mean by that is behavior change is such a difficult thing to do, especially as you're starting off. It's a great measure of like, if you can get someone to change your behavior, yeah, you really know you've created value. But a lot of the time, the value created doesn't happen before you ask them to change their behavior. And so what we wanted to do is give people value before they needed to invest in some sort of behavior change to use us. And so with Zoom, the beauty of that is any Zoom link you click on your computer, it instantly launches you into macro. You don't have to change the calendar invites. If it's not your invite, great. You can use someone's Zoom link. The behavior of clicking Zoom link is so ingrained into people. We didn't want to change that. We didn't want to uproot all of that, which is a really high switching cost um, and really low trialability. So we wanted to flip that. High trialability, low switching cost, boom, immediately get onto macro. The second is um, the growth, the growth aspect, right? Like a lot of the time, if you go to big companies that have IT admins and a uh, person who's managing the Zoom software, which are most companies above like 50 to 100 people these days, it's a process to sell to them and get them to change their meeting software from Zoom, which has kind of become the common denominator, especially during COVID. What, we, what we're able to do is like, you don't need any approval. You don't need any security review because we're all, we've already been vetted and approved by Zoom and they've done a security review. So your IT is like rest easy. We don't touch audio video. Uh, it's all kind of handled by Zoom on, on their end. Like it's a personal choice. You think this is cool, you download it. Great. And then you, when you're meeting with your colleagues, your friends, your coworkers, they see that you've joined via macro. They see that you gotten a different interface, a different shape, a different filter. And they're like, how do I do that? And that's the moment we're trying to spark as much as possible. It's like you're in meetings with people and you're using macro. Other people are going to say like, how'd you do that? Or how did I do, how, how could I do that? And it leads to bottoms up growth, which I think we've seen is a, uh, with early pioneers of that Dropbox and like now Slack and a bunch of other companies now bottoms up product like growth is kind of the norm, but that's how we want to use that mechanism for growth in our product with macro. And your, you know, Zoom has been very um, proactive of late of talking about, we have an app store, right? You can download apps through our marketplace. So I would imagine timing of being part of that. Like I assume once you launch, you'll be available within their marketplace direct from Zoom. Yeah, so we're actually already in the marketplace. There's a couple of different Zoom marketplaces. So the one that's public in the application is called Zoom Apps, which take the same Zoom interface, but then they just add a panel to the side. Um, so it's still in the Zoom client. We are part of the marketplace of, I think it was really just up and coming, which we're helping to promote with Zoom is Zoom clients. So it, ah, okay. it's completely different than using Zoom itself. And we're actually gonna be speaking about that. So Zoomtopia is coming up on September 13th and 14th. And so we'll be um, at part of Zoomtopia leading a, a session on creating a custom Zoom client and how we were able to do that and how you, anybody who's interested in really customizing the audio video experience of Zoom, but owning the interface layer would be able to do the same thing. So. You've had experience of launching products, like you launched a version on Product Hunt, which did really well. You had 676 upvotes, which is phenomenal. So like, how do you go about being successful on Product Hunt or launching a product that you're counting on, you know, like you said, bottom-up growth? Like, how, how do you go about acquisition? So I don't know about I would, I don't know if I'm like the right person to say yo I've done it successfully or not I think we're still iterating and trying to improve there. Um, honestly, the first time we launched on Product Hunt, we did very little planning. We just made got a video shot to produce as a video, and I hunted the product myself, and we just launched it and stayed up all night to launch it at uh, 12 a.m. Pacific and tried to. So that's the right uh, we time. We didn't really have 12 a.m. is the right time to launch. Yeah, there's an article I think written by. I'm blanking on his name, Ben, I think. Um, 
if you search like how to launch on product hunt ben who used to work at product hunt, it literally kind of just walks you through they're great because they're super transparent like you can game the system here are all the rules and how it works here's what like will help you or not we basically just tried to follow that and launched i think at the end of the day product Hunt's not going to make or break your company it's a great way to get exposure but if you don't if you don't get a ton of upload, that doesn't mean that, you know, your product isn't useful. It might just not be with that demographic. Who knows what else is launching on that day? There's so much you can't control, but it is an interesting user acquisition channel. And I think that for us, it proved that there's demand for this. Like we were curious when we first launched macro, which would look very different than the macro I just showed you today. We were like, do people even want a custom zoom experience? Like, do they, do they, do they care? Like, is Zoom good enough? Like, is it getting the job done? Like, there's like cool audio videos there. There's not really that much improvement. Like, how how much would people care about to use, install, and eventually pay for essentially a Zoom skin, right? Um, what we found is, oh shit, that, that that demand really exists. It validated it. So, going back to that, like that reverse engineering, like we built something that we just thought was really cool. We started testing it with a small group of people, but then we launched it and we're like, oh, wow, there's a lot of demand for this. We had like 7,000 installs in the first month or, or even less than a month after launching it on product hunt. And um, then we're like, okay, great. Well, why did, okay. So now they, they, they're using it. Why do they care about it? Like, what are they using in it? What do they like? What value are they finding from it? And that's how we kind of worked our way to what the macro is today, which is they really cared about what it enabled them to do, enabled them, how it empowered them to express themselves and how it let them feel comfortable on Zoom. Uh, and so we're trying to pick up where Zoom left off, which is great audio video tech. And now we're trying to make a great UI UX and putting humans at the center of the conversation. So monetizing this, like, is that going to be like advanced features, like premium, like premium skins that could be associated with a brand or an artist, a musician, like things like that. Like I think of this, so it's like, if people um, are spending money to increase their persona in a video game, right? Why wouldn't they do that here, right? Is that kind of what? Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's really similar to that, right? So it, it, you're exactly right. Uh, it is at the person, like personal level, it's at the consumer level. We're not, eventually, I think we will eventually sell to enterprises, but at the beginning, individual consumers, they're already actually paying us, even though we don't really monetize. So they're boosting our Discord server, they're tipping, like that sort of stuff, but we haven't officially monetized. But yeah, it'll be at the individual level. The same way individuals pay for expression and customization and uniqueness on other gaming and other digital platforms. I think that's what meeting will become too, is as we enter the, the overly hyped buzzword of metaverse, right? That will take many different forms and there'll be multiple metaverses and you'll have your identity across each of those platforms that you choose to spend time on and engage. And video, to connect with other humans in this digital world will always be there, whether it's on Zoom and on Macro or other of the millions different shapes and forms that this can come in. I think self-expression, uniqueness, and identity are going to be key to that. Got it. Okay. Uh, going back to raising capital, one of the things that I heard you talk about uh, in, through my, my research was having different versions of your pitch deck for raising capital. So why is that a good idea to have like three different versions of your pitch deck? So I didn't know it was a good idea until it was basically kind of required out of us. But so the, <laughs> the first deck, I think it's because you want to always control the narrative. I think if you don't tailor the narrative to the type of conversation that's being had or how it's being presented, then you kind of lose control. And we definitely had our deck misinterpreted, um, hadn't explained things clear enough. And so it was through a series of like obvious trial and errors, many errors that we decided, okay, we really need to be in control of this narrative and need to explain it. And so here's what we do, which is there's an intro deck where we're comfortable sending this deck along, but the whole purpose of that is like to get you excited enough to have the conversation because there's more that we could put in that deck that you wouldn't really understand unless we explained it to you. Then there's a deck of like, okay, well, let, let's explain this to you. Um, you don't need as much text because you're explaining it live. You're there in person, but let, we'll, let's give you more. And then there's a deck that you can share. So, I mean, with VCs, a lot of it is they want to share it with their partnership. They need group buy-in or even if they need individual buy-in, it's nice that they want to be able to share and talk to their partners about why they're writing it or making an investment memo. And that's after we've had an initial conversation, after we've had a chance to physically control the narrative by being there in person or virtually and giving you the narrative, then here's a deck that will make more sense and have all that content. And so that's kind of the three tiers of like basically a teaser, an actual in-person walkthrough and a deck to share. Got it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What's um what are three apps you can't live without? Oof. Okay. So Discord for sure. I mean, it's been so fun. Like we use Discord for all of our team communication. We don't we're not a Slack shop. I think we really believe in the mantra of we want to 
meet our consumers where they are and people, consumers use Discord, companies use Slack. And again, it kind of reinforces we're a consumer led company. Um, so Discord, uh, the photos app on my phone, so not Instagram, not Snapchat, none of that, but just the photos app. I think that one of the recent like uh, pieces of advice I saw on Twitter was just like using that little photo widget and putting it on your home screen and it randomly pulls a photo every single day or every few hours to like highlight. It's just a great moment of like reflecting because we take a ton of photos, but um, I don't, at least me personally, I don't go back through and look at those uh, with intentionality. And so surfacing that getting to relive what it was like to be in that moment or wherever that photo was captured is really great. So Discord, Photos app, and hmm, Twitter. Twitter's great. It's our customer acquisition channel. It's our audience. It's our kind of megaphone to the world of what macro is and why we exist. Um, it's where we've hired literally every single team member on macro except for John and I um, wow. is through Twitter. And uh, yeah, the, the app is paid off in spades. It's a great way to engage. It can be a toxic place at times, but I think it's all about how you use it, how you regulate it. And um, you kind of get what you put into it. Now you're uh, based in Austin now. So talk about the yes. tech scene in Austin. There's, there's a lot going on. So what's, uh, what's the vibe like? Yeah, it's great. I mean, still up and coming. I think that I just only moved here a few months ago. So wrapping my head around things, but it's been incredibly welcoming from um, there's I somehow it automatically got added to all these WhatsApp groups when I so I went to a coffee event at the Capital Factory downtown, which is a, a very great hub of uh, Texas entrepreneurship in Austin. And then there's WhatsApp groups for Austin tech hikes, tech meetups. Um, there's small group dinners happening. Um, it's very vibrant. It's very young, which I love. Like there's this like young aesthetic to it where it's it's not just like people who are jaded by the tech industry and big tech companies but a lot of the tech companies here or a lot of the tech people are entrepreneurs they're individuals they're people who are trying to start their own company there's a lot of lifestyle businesses here too which are great for people who are just like silently running their own massive companies without the rah-rah like vc tech crunch articles that are coming out about them right and so there's a lot of success here that i think is actually um, more subdued but there's a lot to learn from and so it's been awesome to be a part of and I'm excited to explore it more. Yeah, it's it's a city that's top of my list of I must visit. I love music. I love technology. Obviously, it's a uh, great weather. So I uh, I need to get down there as soon as I possibly can. So um, maybe we'll be able to sync up. Who knows? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, Ankit, th thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background, all the cool st stuff that you've been working on with Macro. And uh, like I said, by the time this uh, is published, you will be launched. So everyone needs to go out there and download it and hopefully get an amazing experience because you showed us a great demo. So thanks for taking the time and all the great advice. Thank you so much for having me, Keith. And I really enjoyed it as well. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.